Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of Sabbath School from Home. Uh, very glad that you've joined us. Uh, we just noticed on the very verge of hitting the record button that this is uh, the first episode in our fourth year. We have now been running this podcast for three full years, and um, we've we've had a lot of enjoyment and insight and a blessing from it. We hope you have also. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day. Uh, Ken. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Now, uh, just before we start, uh, usually at the end of an episode we say, you know, if you have any points on theology that you wish to uh, correct us on, um, you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Please do that. And, and every couple of weeks or so someone emails in, which is uh, lovely. Um, we've just been having a bit of fun looking at where the podcast is being downloaded around the world. And... Um, uh, you, people who do listen to the podcast might be interested to know the numbers. There's roughly a, a one or two, three hundred people each month, uh, or one, two, or three hundred downloads each month um, of the of the podcast. Um, uh, but some of them are in interesting parts of the world. So uh, in Zimbabwe and Spain, I guess every part of the world is interesting. Um, some of the downloads are in parts of the world particularly interesting to us because they're quite distant. Um, some in the US. Um, I'm just curious to know, you know, who uh, you are and and when you tune into this podcast, what what role it it um, it plays um, in your own um, Sabbath school preparation or, or, or study throughout the week. Um, and uh, yeah, please drop us a line to the email address Sabbath school from home at gmail And it doesn't doesn't have to be theological based. Uh, if if you know any of our uh, overseas listeners were able to tell us a little bit about yourself. That would be that would be lovely. Um, this podcast started, of course, uh, in an effort to try and keep some sense of community in a pandemic. And um, for the four of us here, this I think I can't speak for any of you guys, but this is my Sabbath school. I, this is the part that I look forward to each week for discussing ideas. And for that reason, we'll continue to throw these podcasts out even if no one downloads them because I think we enjoy ourselves. Um, but this this concept of trying to preserve community has some problems. The, the community to which we belong in the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a pretty diverse community and there's a fairly diverse set of um, uh, genres of uh, theology or methodologies we use uh, and some of them just don't seem to work for me personally. Um, so I wanted to start this quarter with sort of a confession, um, which is to say that uh, when I hear that we're going to spend 13 weeks studying the Three Angels' Messages, I have, a, I have an emotional recoil. Um, and it's partly because uh, my personal experience seems to be that a discussion of the Three Angels' Message is always accompanied by... Um, thumping of chests and slapping of backs and a general sort of self-congratulation that we belong to the remnant and that God's using us for a particular purpose and that purpose is specified in Scripture um, and that somehow validates us. Um, and um, I, I just feel a bit worried about that sentiment. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a... Con- I, I, look, can I respond and say uh, I have exactly the same... Uh, well, I don't know that it's exactly the same, but I have a similar um, uh, emotional uh, response uh, whenever this is said. I mean, I studied uh, all of the Seventh-day Adventist doctrines as a 
um, young person um, before I was baptised um, and continued uh, that study over time afterwards. Um, uh, and uh, I think I've become less persuaded of the particular uh, interpretations that we have and more... But, but, there's a, but, but that emotional recoil uh, that you spoke about... Uh, exists there and I'm not exactly sure what's behind it. Indeed, uh, my wife said to me earlier tonight, well, what is behind that? Maybe, and she suggested, maybe we should study this together. Um, and I suggested that, you know, that might be not good for our marriage. Um, um, uh, because of the intensity of the uh, reaction that I have to these, and I'm not sure what's behind it, save that I think it's got something to do with uh, a resistance to a particular way of thinking that is fostered uh, by these things. I, and, and even when I, I say that, and then I say, well, what is that particular way of thinking? And I'm not entirely sure that I can, um, you know, be precise about it. Uh, I think it's something like... Uh, it is a way of uh, bringing everything down, even fantastical things like the stories in the book of Revelation, which are every bit as uh, sci-fi, fantasy, as Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or, you know, <laughs> any of those sorts of things that in our modern world we might be familiar with and, and sort of taking those... Um, fantastic stories and, and reducing them to something that's concrete and black and white and definite and incapable of uh, any modification or flexibility. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a literality to it when that's not what's text is calling for. Um, so there's some of the things that I think are behind my uh, response to saying this sort of, uh, to, to addressing this sort of topic. Um, the, so a couple of the remarks you made there can kind of very resonant, I think, with my, with my sort of feelings. The, the thing that bothers me, um, I've, I've had some incredibly frustrating experiences through Adventism with the book of Revelation, but I've also had some incredibly stimulating and exciting experiences of the book of Revelation through Adventism. And and so there is a diversity in in the community. Um, I mean, for instance, and we I don't know whether we'll get onto this or not, but one of the ideas that absolutely captivated my attention um, when I first encountered it was the idea of, of reading Revelation effectively as protest literature. Um, and, and that just opened a totally different window into sort of seeing some of these things. But that's exactly the point that, that I wanted to make, that the frustration <clears throat> comes when you encounter ideas that are presented so um, single-mindedly and without any scope, you know, so confidently and single-mindedly that there's, there's an implication of, and sometimes even an explicit enunciation of, there cannot be any other reading of this. You know, it is it is so clear, and it well, seems to me that the Book of Revelation just just 
demonstrably can't be that clear because 2,000 years of Christian history, if it were really that clear, there would be a much greater consensus on, yeah. on, on what it meant and what it was saying. Rather, it seems to me to provide its most value when it is used as a recurring stimulus for conversation. Um, yeah. And that, that is a role it has uh, performed well over Christian history. Um, well, look, I'm going to add two comments to your comments, which were comments on Ken's comments, which were comments on my comments. Um, and Luke hasn't made the, any comments yet. Uh, yeah, he's wise. Um, uh, I'm just the, watching your digging your, big old hole together. Yeah, your suggestion, like, it is sometimes explicitly stated there can be no other view. Um, we know there's lots of other views. They're just all wrong. Um, and if you want the correct view, which is code for if you want to belong mm. to our church. Mm. So there are lots of other views, but you cannot belong to our church and question some of these things. And that's that suggestion that this is really this is the shibboleth. This is the um this is the litmus test to decide whether you're in or out. And that any flexibility, you know, this is um, a conversation cannot be had on this um that is partly responsible for my emotional sort of aversion to discussing the topic because um uh it, it seems to me to be a particular sort of doctrinal approach and, and to be clear the bit i'm talking about is the fact that uh, the three angels message is used to defend um Adventist exceptionalism. God's anointing and choosing of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, especially. Mm. Um, and so if you if you somehow question our reading of Revelation, you are then questioning God's choosing and anointing of the church, and and then we have no reason for being, hmm. which, is, which is a subtle form of saying, unless we are perfect and correct, God cannot use us and we have no purpose. But it's perfect and correct in doctrine, not, not in terms of, Sin, because we know that everyone's got sin. I think it's a very weird, a very weird and very dangerous fallacy to think that the purpose of any Christian movement is to be correct. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's that is. Let's put your finger on it exactly, Luke. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And and then if I am told you do not belong unless you accept not only these points of view but the whole mindset that they arise from, then I am left saying, well, maybe I don't belong. Um, and that's as a as a challenge for me in terms of things being clear cut. Um, Ken, uh, the documents that our society, with access to a very large vocab, and um, a that's full of very highly specific and technical terms, the genre in our society where the most care is taken to leave the least room for interpretation would have to be the law. Um, how successful are lawmakers? In, in creating documents that are not subject to different interpretations? Um, uh, that's a loaded question, uh, Cam. <laughs> but but uh, look, I, I spend most of my time uh, determining whether or not um, a particular factual scenario falls within the meaning of, a, of words used in either a contract or more often a piece of legislation. Uh, so that's mostly what I spend my time doing to see whether or not a particular set of circumstances falls within the criteria stated in a piece of legislation. 
often that will involve first determining which of a number of available interpretations of the words is the correct one to apply to that scenario and then see whether or not that scenario fits that interpretation. Perhaps the un my discomfort with a suggestion that there is a definitive interpretation of a particular passage in scripture and only one definitive interpretation uh, uh, of particularly a passage like Revelation 14 um, comes from the fact that I spend most of my time in a world where there are different available interpretations and there are reasons why you would accept one and why you would accept an opposite interpretation and reasons mm. against each of them as well that you then have to uh, uh, decide which is going to uh, have determinative weight. Um, mm. Yeah, well, my contention is, Ken, and our listeners are welcome to disagree with me on this, but I'd, I would be fascinated to know what reasons they would have. My suggestion is that... Um, uh, the book of Revelation is less explicit in its meaning than a rental contract. You may be right. Yeah, my gut feeling is, reading through Revelation, that that less care is taken to dotting the I's and crossing the T's than, than a rental contract. Um, I would prefer to read Revelation than a rental contract because Revelation's much more interesting. Well, I don't know. You, 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 there, there are some rental contracts that are, <laughs> that, where the questions are well, really, really interesting. But anyway, I, I, I carry on. I was going to say, is it is it my rental contract, and what are the numbers in it? Because yeah, that, that'll really that's got a lot of relevance to how interested I would be. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, but it's about yeah. The point point taken, anyway, Cam. <laughs> yeah. So point taken. So did God make a mistake by using this genre? Because it's it's full of imagery and it's full of association, and we recognise this up front. We say when the author of Revelation says thus and thus and thus, they are actually referring to Daniel or they're actually referring to Ezekiel or they're actually referring to... So we acknowledge up front that a lot of the meaning in Revelation is associative um, hmm. rather than explicit. It's, it's done by um, uh, um, allusion to and drawing on a, a general knowledge of the Old Testament and very much employing imagery. Um, either that was a mistake and God would have been wiser to have present, made his meaning a little more um, unambiguous. In the sense, I mean, all language is a symbol and all language is to some extent ambiguous, but there are some similes and metaphors and allusions that are, that are you know, more ambiguous than others. And mm. um, either God made a mistake or there is a reason why it was written this way. And one of the reasons I think Revelation's written this way is that um, a rental contract concerns a very small amount of life. You know, the circumstances it's trying to pin down are very small, but the document is so long because to try and pin it down to that sort of level of precision, you just have to define every term and, you know, it's just a lengthy document. The advantage of a piece of poetry, on the other hand, is by using the sounds of words and the associations of words and the double meanings of words and the you can drag a large number of ideas into a fairly small mm. piece of text and in that sense any imprecision is a feature not a defect mm. 
Well, that's exactly what I was meaning when I claimed earlier that I felt revelation was at its best when it was a catalyst for conversation, because um, as a as a piece of writing to muse over, to, to almost meditate on as, collectively as a community, it, it stimulates all manner of interesting questions and fruitful conversations. That's what I that's what I think. That's that's my claim. I guess we've got another 12 episodes coming up. We're going to we're going to put my hypothesis to the test this quarter in this podcast. Um but it's precisely the elements of it that you've identified that give it that utility, that give it that power. Well, my suggestion was and part of this is just catering to my um reluctance to spend 12 weeks talking about the three angels message um i think we should talk about it this week's lesson is very much about the the general context of the great controversy and um i i feel like i I just don't feel like there's a lot to say on that topic that hasn't been said um isn't that interesting uh, because uh i there there are two there are two ways of approaching life and two ways of thinking uh, there are no doubt many more, uh, as many as there are people. But um, uh, I'm just going to draw on these two. One is a way of thinking that says, well, uh, here is the definitive way of looking at things. Um, and I'm just going to make sure that I keep within those, on those rails of the definitive way of looking at things. And uh, if I just, you know, keep chugging over on those rails, I'll be okay. Um <laughs> Um, and that's all I want. I, I want the certainty of knowing that I'm still on the rails and I haven't been in a train wreck. Um, it's not just that that's what we want. That's what God expects of us. Yeah. Our job in life is to find the rails and hop on them. And, and hop on them and stay there, and uh, even if they're narrow gauge, um, we'll follow them to heaven. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that's, that, that's what, and another way is to say, well, yeah, I've seen that. I understand that's a way of looking at things. I can see the reasons why you uh, why you approach things in that way. Uh, there's an internal consistency to the logic of it. Um, but what's new? What what interesting other insights might there be that we can get from this? And for the person who wants to stick on the rails, that's that's a um, well, it's heresy, it's sacrilege, uh, it's danger. Mm. Um, alarm bells are ringing. Um, we might end up at the wrong destination. Um, yeah. uh, so it's great. interesting that you want to see. So, and, and I, I have to say that resonates with me as well, Cam. Uh, yeah. I want to see something new in this. And 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 one of yeah. the things, one of, and, and I think that there's really good reason for looking for that way. And I respect the other, the other way of approaching things. But but there is also, I mean, one of the. One of the hymns, uh, uh, one of our great hymns, is the word is the hymn "Great is Thy Faithfulness," and the and and one of the lines in that hymn is, uh, "Morning by morning, new mercies I see," mm. and that just doesn't mean God's been merciful to me again because I've sinned again. Um, that that means there's 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 new things that are coming to light, and indeed, when we go to Revelation and uh, we go to the very throne room of God. Um, the creatures who are closest to God spend all of their time saying holy, 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 because they've just seen something new uh, in God that yeah. keeps them going uh, for eternity. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so one of the things I said in a sermon recently when I was preaching at Launceston is 
that uh, God's been very slack in providing specific guidance to his church because there's all sorts of things we argue over. And I gave three or four scenarios where the Bible's so ambiguous. And one of them is, is, is the life of faith essentially conservative or progressive? And by you've, that's the two viewpoints you've, you've outlined. So the, the conservative is let's value tradition. Let's value um, the, what we've been taught in the past. Let's not be taken into every wayward and divergent path. Let's stick to what God's given us and to see value in preserving the way things have been. And there's strong biblical passages supporting that about teaching these things to your children and writing the, you know, on the doorsteps and the lintels and about staying true to God in Deuteronomy and, you know, all these passages where people are commended for their faithfulness in difficult times, etc., etc., etc. Against that, you've got the progressive mindset where um, you look for value in new things. And this causes disagreements in the church, this spectrum. It's not just on theology, it's on architecture. You know, we're going to design a new church. What should it look like? Music. It's on, mm. it's on music. It's on the layout of the the church. It's on the time of church. Um, are we allowed to start Sabbath school a bit later and have a breakfast at the start? Um, or dare we not switch Sabbath school and church? Um, dare we not switch Sabbath school and church? I know a church. I know a church that meets in the afternoon. Goodness, goodness. I know a church that meets so, over pizza, but there you are. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, uh, my regret, Ken, is that um, there are churches that don't meet over peace. <laughs> I think that that's... But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Why, why can't God just be a bit more clear and tell us whether a progressive mindset or a conservative mindset is the right one? And the answer surely must be um, he created people to be diverse for a reason. Um, he is not going to com- he's, he's not going to commit to which of these is essentially correct. Well, I was... It is our job in relating to each other. Sorry, Luke, you go. I was just going to say, Cam, and I've been waiting for some time to say it. Ah. Your entire... <laughs> Somebody here is laughing. Um, your uh, entire question um, is based on the assumption that one must choose between conservative and progressive. Yeah. That it is a dichotomy. <laughs> and yeah. also that those are the only two choices. Yeah. Um, well, what's the third? Or the, 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 the same one is right in every scenario on, and on every topic. Ah, there you uh, go. Or, There's or there other, something there. Many other different um, assumptions on the nature of things. The more, the more I consider, because conservative and progressive are overused terms, they crop up not just in, polit- in religion but also in politics a fair bit, the more I consider them, the more I think that they are the, the spectrum is a useful way to consider specific instances. It is a tool that you can look at two viewpoints and go, one of these is more progressive than the other, one of these is more conservative than the other. And that is a useful way to contrast. Outside of that specific use, the the very idea of a spectrum of conservative to progressive is such an oversimplification of the complexities of any worthwhile topic that it's... Basically meaningless. Well, yes, and even it's it's not even a useful way of categorizing people because I've got friends who are very liberal on some lifestyle. I had friends at college who would go off surfing Sabbath morning to be close to God, but who would only read the King James version. Um, so you know, people don't fall neatly into the categories either. And my question also assumed that that it is a problem that people in a church disagree with each other. 
um, maybe that is a feature of church, not a problem. Well, um, to a degree, perhaps. To, well, <laughs> in, in, in scenarios, yeah. in certain scenarios. I suspect that the their ability, the, the nature and tone of their disagreement may be what distinguishes the defect from the feature. <laughs> I, I, um, I did some conflict resolution training with a Christian organisation uh, at one point, and they started with the text uh, where two or three are gathered in his name, uh, there'll be an argument. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, that's good. Um, well, that's, um, that's similar to the phrase, I, I, I may be misremembering it, and I said it, but you know, if you get um, three rabbis together, you'll end up with four opinions. <laughs> that's right. Something along those lines. Um, but just coming back to the conservative progressive thing is a, Again, I, I do I do genuinely think um, is is making progress and preserving something valuable mutually exclusive. Is it inevitable that progress leads to the loss of the past? Yeah. I think that's a really know? important question to ask because that is what the assumption of that dichotomy is built on. That the progressives are yeah. going to destroy everything that we already have of value, and and vice versa. The conservatives are going to prevent us from learning anything yeah. new of value. And I, I just, yeah. I deeply question the assumption. Well, I found out something interesting, um, which is that if you expose people to sudden noises or to a new smell, if you put them in a room, and then you measure basic physiological th- over which they have no control, by how much does their pulse increase? What happens to their core body? You know. Things that are gut, instinctive, un- subconscious reactions. Um, some people react much stronger to a sudden noise. I mean, that's a surprise to no one. What is interesting, and again, it's really not that surprising, is that this correlates with whether they vote conservative or progressive. So, um, you know, maybe we don't choose. Maybe, well, maybe we are just genuinely born different. Like there's some people for whom the experience of something new is threatening, and it's it's not. Oh, their experience of life is just going to be completely different to someone for whom, you know, the lack of new things drives them mad, and they're always searching for something different. So, um, so I think I think this is part of the problem. I feel very ostracised when someone stands up and says, "We're going to do thirteen weeks on the three angels' message, and in this quarter, we're going to talk about all of the things that we've always talked about in the same order we've always talked." About. We're going to really drive home. We're going to stay on the train tracks, um, and. At an emotional level, I feel excluded. Uh, I am absolutely willing to accept that were I to write the lesson and fill it with all sorts of interesting new viewpoints, there could be other people that felt emotionally excluded from the church. So, um, you know, the fault, the fault, if it, if there is a fault in the general approach to discussing some of these traditional doctrines, um, it's not like I would necessarily do much better at writing a lesson that would unify everyone who read it behind one banner um is that the purpose of a Sunday so, school lesson well <clears throat> this is another point where i disagree with the general ethos that the purpose of the Sabbath school lesson and the reason why we all study the same thing at the same time all across the world is so that we're part of a global church there is an inference that the lesson will rally us behind one banner how's that working do you uh, well one gentleman that i spoke with um barry plain um, a few years ago, told me, he said, everyone is worried that the church might split along theological lines or cultural lines or socioeconomic lines. Um, he said it's a bit um, it's a bit irrelevant because in many 
practical ways, it has already split. Hmm. Um, I recently finished a book called How the Bible Actually Works, uh, the uh, subtitle of which is in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's great news. Um, at page 165, uh, Peter N says, And so we are back to our paradox. To maintain any tradition, you need to hold on to some aspects of the past, while at the same time thinking creatively about how the past and the present can meet, reimagining the faith, as I've been putting it. The perennial wisdom question is, what remains and what gets transformed? Mm. Mm. That, I think, is a really good insight. Yeah. Oh, look, I'd recommend the book. I don't think you'll find it in Kurong, uh, and I don't think you'll find it in the ABC bookstore. Um. Funny that. I'll have to look slightly further afield. But the, the, the idea there, which I think is a very truthful one, is born out in my experience, that to, that to achieve preservation of valuable things requires adopting some amount of change. Mm. If you try and lock something in stasis... It, 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 it you do it reminds me of the sort of you know the, the this is this is a bit of a this is a bit of this is a poor analogy but go with me here if 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 you collect antique cars and you do so by putting them in a, a big hermetically sealed room and perfectly preserving them there you haven't actually preserved any cars i would i would argue yeah. because cars yeah. fundamentally what a car is is something that drives and none of the things mm. that you've put in your museum drive. They're static yeah. objects. You've preserved the the appearance, the image, the materials, the manufacture, the body of the thing, but not the thing itself. It no longer drives. It's not a car. Indeed, what's central to it is its function, and you have completely removed that. Well, this mm. is why people still play Stradis- Stradivarius violins instead of locking them up in museums. It's because... It's very valuable only because it makes because nice music when you put it in the hands of the professional. And if it ceases yeah. to make a sound, that I mean, I guess it would still have some historical value. But um, and look, yeah. I mean, to be clear, I think that's I'm a good not, analogy. I'm not Luke. arguing that that we shouldn't put things in museums. I, I just think we should recognise that when we put things in museums, what we're preserving is an image of the past. We are not in any meaningful mm. way preserving the past. A steam engine in a museum is is. A steam train yeah. in a museum is no longer a train. An aeroplane in a museum is no longer an aeroplane. It's an image of the aeroplane that was, you know. An aeroplane is something that flies. If it's flying, it's a plane. If it's not, yeah. it's a very expensive model. Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Ken yeah, knows yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest a, a, a brief summary of where I, I feel we've got to. Um, if people have tuned into this podcast expecting to hear the same things that um, the church... And when I say the church, that's not really fair because the church is diverse, but I think it would be reasonable to say that the sort of conservative mindset um, is overly represented in church administration. Um, And so the lesson seems to come from a place where it's really important to say these things again um, and just to remind ourselves of them. And they'll be said in the same passages connected in the same ways to produce the same outcomes. Um, and that if someone's listening to this podcast hoping to get that, they've probably listened to the wrong, wrong podcast um, because I, I, I just am not built that way. Um, and, um, you know, if, if there is no place for 
sort of exploratory thinking on this topic, then there's probably no place for me in the Adventist church. Um, so, <clears throat> but I don't want anyone listening to the podcast to assume that I seriously contend all Adventists should think the way I think. Because, you know, if I was to write the lesson the way that was perfect for me, there would be other people who at an emotional level felt might feel that they didn't belong. There are some people for whom a sense of predictability is really important. I listened to a podcast this week about a, a lady who had severe social anxiety that wasn't diagnosed until her late 30s. And she was a chronic school avoider. The only thing that got her to school was the school debating team, specifically because in a debate there is structure about who talks and who answers and what happened. That structure was a familiar thing for her. Like that, that was something mm. that she could rely on. So, you know, there's, there's a cartoon by Lunig. This is the summary. There's a cartoon by different Lunig. Uh, sorry, by Lunig uh, that's entitled uh, Different Needs of Different Men. And there's four blokes sitting on the ground flying kites. And next to them are four blokes way up in the breeze being blown about by the wind. And they're hanging on to strings that are tied to rocks that are on the ground. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's, that's the image. You know, some of us are sitting on the ground flying kites and some of us are being swept through the air and need a rock to keep us... That is such a you know, brilliant grounded. image. I, I, that, that is that is <laughs> wonderful. So let's yeah. let's let's not suggest even when we will be critical, and I, I anticipate some level of criticism of the general approach um, to this topic. Um, that a conservative person has no place in the church, or that a conservative viewpoint hasn't added a lot to our community and won't continue to add a lot to our community going on, or that conservative people have a pivotal role in ensuring that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater as we, we journey to new truth. So um, that's the sort of context I'd like this quarter to have in. My proposal is that we loosely follow the direction of the lesson, but expand our viewpoint a little bit uh, to not just look at the three angels' messages. Luke's informed me just before the podcast started that Revelation 14 has lots of angels in it anyway. Um, there are messages from lots of different angels at various points in the chapter, not just three. Uh, but there are, of course, messages... Um, elsewhere in the scripture where God sends a messenger, an angel to deliver a message and I, th I think it would just be interesting to um, to explore some of those other passages and the one for this week, and I'm eyeing the clock I have about two minutes to, to throw this in but the idea is not a complicated one to get across um, the story of Balaam God sends a messenger uh, but who is the recipient of the message? The donkey Most assuredly. Yeah. Yeah, Balaam doesn't do a very good job um, Although the, and, the angel does speak to Balaam as well, he does, but only to tell him to stop hitting the donkey. Yeah, <laughs> which, and, if you think about it, is a fairly specific and mundane thing for an angel to to do. The message "Don't go this way" um, because God doesn't want you to do this thing is given by the angel to the donkey. The mm, only message mm. the angel gives to Balaam is, "Your donkey's." much wiser than you are stop hitting him he hasn't done anything wrong yeah and if it wasn't for the donkey i would have killed you by now <laughs> yeah but i wouldn't let the donkey live um is yeah. what the angel says one the the Look, point that, the point that i wanted to sort of throw in there is um we're very hungry to find a particular message at a particular time at the end times that's given just to us as the adventist church um and there's a sort of vague implication that if we are recipients of a special message, then we must be pretty special. Um, and I, I don't think that's borne out by the 
by the passage of scripture as a whole. Um, I mean, who are the people that see messages? There's the donkey sees the angel long before Balaam does. Um, Gideon. If you give too many examples, come we're not, we're going to run out of things to talk about for the next. No, these weeks. these well these are things. A list that I propose we brainstorm now. A list of of other angels' messages we can explore well, in more detail could, later on. Hagar, Mary, Zechariah. Yeah, well, but we we could revisit Balaam. Uh, but yes, there's Mary and there's Zechariah. Manoah. What was the other one you said, Ken? Uh, uh, Mary, Zechariah, Hagar. Um, Hagar, yeah. There's um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm. Manoah. Oh, yes. Uh, Samson's dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We might need to think about what an angel is, too. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I, look, I wonder whether or not, given how much we've spoken, uh, and this is only really sort of loosely associated, but it was a poem that I came across uh, recently. Um, and given uh, one of the things, Cam, that you said is, well, maybe God should have taken more care with his words. Well, the fact that the words may not be as unambiguous as we want, that the message may arrive to us uh, with a degree of uncertainty or a requirement for wise interpretation, doesn't mean there was no care taken with the words. Uh, indeed, uh, poetry is a classic example of where great care is taken with the words uh, uh, to uh, leave often uh, uh, much to interpretation to ascertain a meaning. Um, Mary Oliver is a great uh, American poet, indeed a winner of the Perlitzer Prize. Um, and this is a poem from her book Felicity. Everyone now and again wonders about those questions that have no ready answers. First cause, God's existence, what happens when the curtain goes down and nothing stops it, not kissing, not going to the mall, not the Super Bowl. Wild roses, I said to them one morning. Do you have the answers? And if you do, would you tell me? The roses laughed softly. Forgive us, they said. But as you can see, we are just now entirely busy being roses. Oh, that's lovely, Ken. I think, I think that's a good place um, to end it today. I think we will. Um, please uh, go with us on this journey. We're not exactly sure where the journey is going to take us ourselves, um, but we do hope uh, that our... Um, Discussions would be God-led and, and um, you know, provide food for thought to help us all on our Christian journey. And um, feel free to email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and uh, share the podcast with any friends, uh, should you so wish, and join us again next week.